Today we close out this short four-week journey through the book of Ruth, a story that's really like our own, filled with ups and downs and twists and turns all throughout, but a clear reminder that finite creatures such as us will, will never fully comprehend the plans of an infinite God. And what a beautiful reminder it is. But God has given us this little book to, to help us see the things that he does in the course of our life, to see the big things, the small things, the, the seemingly kind of what we would deem even insignificant things, how he's working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Our Lord has given us this book to help us learn to trust him in those difficult seasons. Some of you may find yourself in that particular season right now when life doesn't seem to make sense, when it feels like even that we ourselves have made a mess of things, when all we can end up asking is, why? Why? Why, Lord, why? I don't understand. Well, God has given us this little book of Ruth to let us know that he's in control of absolutely everything, whether we understand it or not. And ultimately, ultimately, maybe not as fast as we would like, not as soon as we would like, but ultimately everything will be okay. It'll be okay for those who take refuge under the wings of our, of our God. Take refuge under his outstretched wings. Now, last week we looked at chapter 3, where Naomi instructed Ruth to, to get all fixed up, to, to, to go bathe and put on a nice outfit and to get the perfume on and go out dressed to impress and then go un, under the cover of darkness and lay at the feet of, of Boaz. Now, whether her motives were pure or not, it does not matter because either way, it really was not good advice from Naomi to give to to Ruth, to go lay at the feet of Boaz. Just the simple fact that many of you came up after the service uh, last week and were talking about how shady that whole scene seemed to be and all the innuendos that seemed to come out of it is reason enough to recognize that Naomi put Boaz and Ruth in a very, very compromising position. So not, not a good idea, bad decision. But what we looked at last week is also the reality that God in his providence is sovereign even over our bad decisions. And I praise him for that. Nothing, absolutely nothing is stopping the purposes of God from advancing in this story, the big story, or our story. As Boaz here now responds to Ruth's request for redemption, she's asked him to to come under and have him redeem her. She basically proposed marriage to him. And look how Boaz responds in verse 10 of chapter 3. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after younger men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. So while Boaz desires to redeem Ruth, to marry Ruth, desires to extend more hesed kindness, more loving kindness to her, desires to give her his heart, that's what he wants, he can't yet. And he knows that he can't yet. And the question is why? Well, the reason why not is because the heart of Boaz belongs to the Lord before it belongs to anyone else. The Lord first. 
As much as he desires to redeem her, he can't, at least not yet, because God's law, God's word, the Bible, says that someone else has the right to redeem her first. And so whatever the Bible says, Boaz says that comes first. As Boaz is a man committed to obeying the word of, of God. And that's the drama that is unfolding in chapter 4. Who, who is going to ultimately redeem Ruth and Naomi? Will it be this unnamed redeemer that can has the right to redeem her first? Or will it be Boaz? And that's the tension that kind of builds in and leads us into chapter 4. As Naomi had told us from the very end of chapter 3, that Boaz will not rest until this matter is settled. So picking up in chapter 4, verse 1, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. Let's pause there briefly. This gate is a gate into the city. People coming and going, likely from the fields back into the city, kind of a hustle and bustle. And he knows that this unnamed redeemer will eventually pass through this gate and he'll be able to grab his attention and talk with him. And behold, the the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. He's grabbing these 10 men to serve as witnesses to what is about to take place. So verse three, then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, but it in, in, in the presence of those sit by it, in the presence of those sitting here, and in the presence of the elders of my people, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and, and I come after you. And how does this unnamed redeemer respond here? Well, he tells us in the very next sentence. And he said, I will redeem it. Now, for us reading this story, kind of engrossed in this story and followed it from the very beginning, it's like, no, that's not how this is supposed to go. He's not supposed to be the one redeeming. Boaz is to be the redeemer. But at the same time, I can't blame this man for making a very wise, what seems, business decision. He's been offered a parcel of land, a field. He says, sure, I'll buy it. But what we can't forget is Boaz himself is a pretty wise businessman also because look what he does next. He's offered the land first. Guy says, sure, I'll redeem it. Now see what he does. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So Boaz is like, okay, by the way, Other than the land, in addition to the land, you'll also be redeeming Ruth. And don't forget, she's a Moabite. A lot of negative connotation that comes in the context there that we don't have time to dive back into. But what Boaz is doing here is he's making a gut check moment for this unnamed redeemer. Is he willing, does he desire to marry and redeem a Moabite named Ruth? Is that what he wants? So how does he respond? He has time to think about it, and he answers in verse 6. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. 
Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And as readers at this point immersed in the story, this is where we're like, yes, he's going to get the girl. He's going to redeem her. Even us guys who don't particularly like cheesy romance Hallmark movies that are all over the place right now, we're watching them with our wives, we're watching them with those that we love, and we're kind of engrossed in them, pretending that we're interested as we're going on, but secretly we're kind of tangled up in the, the storyline, and we want the guy to get the girl, or maybe that's just me. <laughs> but... Anyway, Boaz is going to be the redeemer. But this isn't the climax of the story. Verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. They're not going to go grab a lawyer. What are they going to do? They're going to draw off his sandal. (laughs) And he gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Maelon. Also Ruth and the Moabite, the widow of Maelon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And now look how they respond. Look at the prayer that they pray over Boaz and his new family here. Verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Epitaph and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar, also a foreigner, bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So much in these two verses here. First, we're reminded that the prayer Naomi prayed back in chapter 1 It has been answered. That prayer that she prayed for for Ruth and Orpah to to receive the loving kindness of God and and receiving a new husband, that that is exactly what has happened. Um, An abundantly kind answer to her prayer, God has answered in giving Ruth a husband, a redeemer. Second, notice the prayer is, is for Ruth to be like that of Rachel and Leah. Rachel and Leah being the the wives of Jacob. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Uh, Rachel and Leah being the founding mothers of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now take your mind all the way back to the first chapter. A chapter filled with darkness, filled with famine, filled with despair and emptiness. How how many of us would have ever thought in, in not being familiar with this story that such an outcome would take place? that Moabite Ruth would not only be redeemed by an Israelite in Bethlehem of all places, but would be so intimately associated with the founding mothers of Israel. And then thirdly, they prayed for the house of Boaz to be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. The house of Perez being the, the, uh, the clan Boaz was descendant of and had risen to prominence in the tribe of Judah. 
again, mothered by a foreigner like Ruth. Maybe a little foreshadowing of what was to come as we see this prayer answered in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. Church, what we have right here in this picture, what we have in this scene, is a great reversal taking place. Notice how Naomi is no longer bitter, but pleasant. No longer empty, but full. All because of the loving kindness of God seen through Boaz and Ruth. But this is still not the climax of our story. We see in verse 17, and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, not real creative. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, which David is this? It's King David. David and Goliath, David, which means Moabite Ruth is the great-grandmother of King David. And Naomi is the great-great-grandmother of King David. You know, talk about not being able to see the big picture. Talk about a, a great reversal that's taking place here. These people who are mentioned in this genealogy haven't been born yet, but are being profoundly influenced by the events of this story. Think about all the events that took place to even bring us to where we are today in our own lives. All the events that took place before we were born, before we even were a thought to to bring us to where we are right now, all under the providential hand of God. But let's keep reading. We see in verse 18, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Now here's where we have to be careful. We have to be careful not to see this genealogy as a simple tack on to the story. Sometimes we, we see genealogies as we see, well, that's boring, that's irrelevant. I don't want to read a genealogy for. But they're not, especially not this one. As this genealogy leads us to the true climax of our story and the realization that what God is doing in the book of Ruth is a deeper significance than Naomi or Ruth or Boaz would ever be able to understand just as what God is doing in your life is deeper than you can ever begin to understand. Because this is not the last time we see this genealogy. Turn your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 1. If you don't have your Bibles, it will be up on the screen, but we'd love for you to be able to follow along in the text. Matthew chapter 1, very first book of the New Testament. You've come out of 400-year period of darkness, no word from the Lord, and now here comes Matthew, the start of this new, new section of New Covenant, and we pick up in Matthew chapter 1, verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. 
and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Okay, all this is sounding familiar. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, you want to talk about God being sovereign over absolutely everything, including our sinful actions, our really, really bad decisions? Wow. Just dive into that story within this genealogy. But we go on to verse 7. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon, which is a time being when most of Israel believed that God had completely forgotten his promises, but we've come to verse 12, and after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abuid, and Abuid the father of Elakim, Elakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Born where? Bethlehem, the city of David. Talk about God's providence. In the midst of one of the darkest times in human history, the period of the judges, when all of humanity is spiraling into depravity, God sends forth a redeemer named Boaz to redeem a Moabite named Ruth. And not only does God's loving kindness, does he bless Ruth and Naomi with a redeemer and a child, he blesses the world with a savior. Thus the reason I say this is the perfect book for Advent. The message of this book being all about the loving kindness of our great God. Loving kindness that leads to both physical and spiritual restoration. And in that sense, the story of Ruth is a picture of the gospel and of the grace of God. It's the reminder that our God is truly working all things. Yes, all things. The little things, the big things, the small things, the confusing things. All things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Just think about all the details that that play out throughout this story. You have a famine that we would call a natural disaster. You have death and unspeakable tragedy. You have numerous bad decisions, sinful decisions. Elimelech and Naomi moving to Moab because of the famine, not trusting God to provide for them in Bethlehem, not repenting of sins of of their people. Naomi's sons then marrying Moabite wives who God had prohibited them from marrying. Naomi then telling her daughter-in-law, Ruth, to get dressed to impress and go at the, lay at the feet of Boaz. None of these being wise, biblical, good decisions. 
But we did see some decisions and actions that played throughout this book that were, that were good as well. Kind. Ruth displaying great loving kindness to Naomi. Ruth taking shelter under the outstretched wings of God. Leaving everything that she had ever known to, to take refuge under the God of Israel. Boaz showing the same loving kindness to Ruth and then Ruth back to Boaz. This book is is a story of ups and downs and twists and turns like we've already mentioned. If you remove the names and the specifics here of this story, it really could be any of our lives that are playing out here. You have good decisions and bad decisions and sinful decisions and natural disasters and life and death and all that comes in and every detail, every last one under the sovereign hand of God. All of it. God working all things for the good of those who who love him. And the natural question is how? How do he do that? How does he do that? How does he work all things? Like, the messed up things. How, how in the world can literally all things be working for the good of those who love him? Because I look at this world, you look at this world, and we're left with questions. Like, how? How's that situation? How's that moment? How's that pain being worked for the good of those who love him? This is where we're going to zoom out beyond the 30,000 feet view, see the big picture, and kind of land the plane, if you will, on this series. Because our answer is, because all things find their reconciliation in Christ. All things find their reconciliation in Christ. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Give you just a couple moments to get there. One of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. Before this is coming, just the passage where he's talking about the preeminence of Christ. Talking about Christ, he is the the image of the the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things created through him and for him and in him all things hold together. Now we're coming down here to verse 19. It says, for in him, again, speaking of Christ, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God reconciling all the brokenness, sin, and confusion in this world, all things whether on earth or in heaven, reconciled to himself. And again, the question is how? How does he do that? Through Christ, born in Bethlehem, from the line of Boaz, through the line of David, out of a Moabite Ruth, specifically by the blood of Christ. A child who was born to live and to die. As verse 20 tells us, making peace by the blood of his cross. And this is where when we quote Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, 
When we quote this cherished and comforting and beloved verse, when we go to him like, okay, all things work for good of those who love him, we cannot overlook the words for those who love him. For those who love God. Cannot overlook that. Why? Because it's only those who love God who can have confidence that all things are working together for their good. Only those who love God. God is not, and let's be clear, God is not reconciling to himself things that are under the earth. It says things on earth and in heaven. Not things that are under the earth. Not those who deny him. Not those who don't love him. He's not reconciling to himself those who do not take shelter under his wings. He's not reconciling to himself those who do not take shelter under the blood of the cross. But, but, for those who love God, those who were called according to his purpose, Christ has made past tense peace by the blood of his cross. Meaning if we love Christ, we have been called according to his purpose. We have been reconciled, made right with God. Christ taking our sin and we receiving his righteousness. How? Something good we've done? A kindness that we have bestowed on another? No. Not by works. Not by family heritage. Not by any kindness of our own. But nothing but the loving, unconditionally devoted kindness of God displayed through the cross of Christ. And we will have peace. And we will have rest. Not as soon as we would like. We'd like it now. And there'll be bits and there'll be pieces along the way. But ultimately, when all is said and done, for those who love God, all things will work for good. It'll work for good and we will have rest. But what I love about this beautiful little book is the reminder of the great lengths that God went to make our redemption possible. The great lengths that our great God went to make us right with him. Ruth being just one small piece of the puzzle, but remove this one small piece of the puzzle and the puzzle isn't complete. Now think about all the other pieces, pieces of your story, this story, and all the other stories that compile into this big story and all the details told and untold from garden to garden through this grand meta-narrative of scripture from the garden of Eden to the garden of Gethsemane. One garden being the place where sin entered the world. Sin and death became a reality. And the other garden, that being the place where Christ committed to drink the full cup of God's wrath to reconcile us to God once and for all. Talk about a great reversal. That's a great reversal. And we see a picture of this reversal in the book of Ruth. The empty being made full. The destitute foreigner being redeemed. Church, you know what this is? It's the gospel. It's the good news. There's bread. There's bread in Bethlehem. The bread of life. The son of God. A beautiful display of the depths of God's loving kindness to redeem destitute sinners such as us. Oh, the faithfulness of our great God on display.
See, it's a book like this is the reason that we're able to say Merry Christmas. There's so much loaded behind those two words. Merry Christmas. It's a display of the unconditionally devoted, loving kindness of God. It's a church Merry Christmas. Let's pray together.